Bruce, could you please say a few words about yourself? My name is Bruce Cleveland. I've been in the Valley for roughly about 35 years. Began my career at a small startup on Sand Hill Road called Oracle, where I ran uh, product marketing, product management for the Unix product offerings, the database offerings. Uh, from Oracle, I went off to uh, Apple, where I uh, took over all of their object technology engineering, as well as a bunch of other software products uh, that were primarily targeted towards business, not really towards consumer. And then around 1995, just the end of 1995, uh, Tom Siebel had created Siebel Systems a, a couple of years prior and had asked me to join the company. So I was, I don't know, employee 40, 50, something like that. And uh, about f five years later, we were 10,000 employees or almost 10,000 employees, about uh, 2 billion in revenue. And uh, I performed a number of roles for Tom. One was I, I was the head of marketing. We didn't call them chief marketing officer back then, but that's what it was. I ran all the partnerships, business development. And then uh, finally, I was chief product officer for the company for several years until we sold the company to Oracle in 2006. And I decided to do something completely different which was venture capital, and uh, elected to join a, a small but fairly well-known firm called Interwest Partners. Strangely enough, located in the very same small building that Oracle had been located in back when I started in the Valley. And I built a software practice there. One of the first investments I made was an idea, three, three people, that became a company called Marketo, uh, which did uh, fairly well. In fact, just acquired by Adobe uh, last year for almost $5 billion, early investor in, in Workday, and a number of the other companies that you, you'll probably hear about now, things like C3.ai, Doximity, and uh, a few others that are all now, were just barely startups at the time. In fact, Doximity was just an idea and um, are now all valued at a billion dollar plus, all really B2B, one or two B2B to C investments. I really don't do consumer because of my experience at Apple. And uh, a couple of years ago, InterWest decided to move into basically focusing solely on healthcare. So I joined with two other people I'd known for many years to create a new venture firm focused on very early stage B2B2C investments called Wildcat Venture Partners. And I'm one of the founding three general partners here. Raising capital is one of the top priorities of many startup founders. How should they go about it? What should they do to make investors interested? Strangely enough, I decided to write a book about this stuff. What do you need to do to get investors to be interested in your company? It turns out that there's a lot of help in the go-to-product phase. Steve Blank, Eric Reese teaching us, and accelerators and incubators that will teach us how to get our product to reach product market fit and get to a minimum viable product. And that's really the first phase of a company. Phase three of a company is really how do we scale it? Everything's working. You know, we're, we've got a market. We've got a product that works. We know how to sell it. Um, now, how do we scale it? And there's a lot of help there. There's boutique groups that will work with you. There's even large groups, McKinsey, Bain, Booza. I mean, these are companies that will help you if you're, if you're large. In the middle, though, the second phase is a, a highly problematic phase, the go-to-market phase. This is the time when there's really very limited data for investors. There's limited data to the management team about, do we really have a market? Have we just found a few people interested in buying it? Or is there really a large opportunity for it? And it turns out that there's really very sparse amount of, of resource 
for entrepreneurs and investors to really draw upon in order to make decisions in this really important phase. And it turns out roughly 80, 85% of all startups fail in this phase, this phase two go-to-market phase. And this is what I call the traction gap. This traction gap is a notorious point in time, a murky point in time. There's just not much data. We're mostly PowerPoint companies at this moment. We're not really spreadsheet. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is we have very little data about the actual business model. We don't really know whether the pricing's right. We don't know what the margins are going to be. We're certainly not profitable. At least most are not profitable. We don't really have a set understanding of whether or not I understand the motion, the velocity of of sales and marketing at this moment. And so a lot of teams which have a lot of product engineering skill, uh, they came from great companies or they went to great engineering schools or MBA programs, etc. While we learn product engineering skills, what I have found, what I discovered after being in this business, this venture business over the last 10 years or so, is that that's not really what determines the success of these companies. Most companies can build really good products. They work, but that doesn't mean they work commercially. And so this period of time, this traction gap, when we're trying to demonstrate that our product, our idea has traction in the market, we're trying to do that to investors. We don't have a lot of data to show for that. And there aren't a lot of guardrails. There's no real signpost around, hey, what should I be doing at this moment in time? And we don't learn these things in business school. We don't learn them as engineers. And what I found is that the difference between the winners, that is the startups that go on to scale and those that fail, is really down to market engineering. Market engineering, it really is a set of different tasks that must be performed. It's thought leadership. What are the words? What's the lexicon that you're introducing into the industry? What's the category that you're creating or redefining? How are you positioning yourself in that? The world looks like this, but with your product, it's going to look like that. And why is that compelling for people to want to acquire this product or service? Other issues, for example, positioning messaging. All of these are part of the market engineering problem. And in this traction gap framework that I created, and then in the book, which describes what this framework is, there's a set of value inflection points that a company needs to go through from ideation to scale. And we adopted minimum viable product kind of as our model, minimum viable. And we adopted that because everybody kind of knows what that is. We adopted that particular vernacular in order to describe other value inflection points on this framework. So you have ideation, then you have something called minimum viable category, which I described as part of the market engineering work that we need to define. This has to happen before MVP, before we reach a a minimum viable product. And in fact, in the book, I talk about actually MVP is not just about the product. It's about the category. It's about the name of the category. It's about how you are positioned in that category, etc. And these are not skills that are normally innate to startup teams. They're innate to people who we know and recognize like Larry Ellison, Mark Benioff, Steve Jobs, Tom Siebel. These are innate market engineers. They did this work from the very beginning, positioning their company, creating nomenclature, positioning themselves in the center of this new category that they wanted to create. This is what really differentiates the winners from the losers, and it's what will get investors interested in your startup, your idea. You need to perform this work. You need to have these talk tracks. You need to explain this information because at the time that you're going to look for this initial funding source, you are not going to have a lot of what we would consider to be the kind of metrics that a more mature company would have, which is revenue, 
growth rates, et cetera. This is mostly how good it will be, not how good it has been. So when is it the right time to raise capital? I would suggest that you are always seeking outside capital. Um, that capital can come from customers. It doesn't necessarily have to come from investors. But for the most part, most people are concerned about when do I go and seek angel, pre-seed, professional money, whatever it is. And I would argue that that particular process needs to begin when you have enough evidence that there is a potential market for your product and that you can explain that evidence. This is something that a lot of, uh, a lot of startups just don't spend time on. They'll put together a presentation and there'll be like 30 slides in that. And the first 28 or nine of those, the first 28 of them, they're about the market as they see it or what it could be, um, however they express it. They haven't really done tons of research. It's just mostly done through online searching and, and looking at data that says, oh, well, we believe that there's a market. Have they actually talked to a thousand companies and a, or a thousand people? Seldom. Then they, have, they can describe the architecture they want to build. They could talk about the back-end microservices they're going to develop, and they're going to use React for the front end. It'll be a responsive system. You know, they could talk for days about the product. So that's kind of like the slides 1 through 28. Slide 30 is the ask. Hey, we need 200,000, or we need a million, or five, whatever it is. And, and we're going to use it for the following reasons. Slide 29 is what I affectionately called a miracle occurs slide, which is the growth rate. Whether it's if it's consumer, it's number of active users. If it's SaaS, it's you know revenue. Yet nowhere is there any explanation of how you're going to acquire said revenue or said customers. It's kind of just left as a what I would say is an anthemomatic statement which really means an unstated premise. So that we're all supposed to accept at fact that, oh, you're going to be able to do this and you know how to do it. When we actually know that 85% of all startups fail because they can't do that and they don't know how to do it. They don't even have a, a thesis for what it costs to acquire at the top of the funnel, what it costs to then convert that funnel into closed business, and then what retention rates are. We know that, it, that the numbers that this moment in time will be wrong. They are just hypotheticals. But nobody even does that work. We don't have, hey, CAC ratio, CLTV expectations, churn rate expectations, etc. And at the heart of it, we also don't have anything about, well, how is it that you're going to get in front of? How are you going to, the cacophony of sound, <laughs> digital sound um, in the universe is just so loud today. How are you going to break through to get somebody to listen to you? What kind of thought leadership work are you going to do? What conferences? Are you going to speak at? Why should anybody listen to you when they could listen to the great orators, Mark Benioff in Salesforce or Larry Ellison at Oracle, etc.? This is where energy needs to be spent. And so you should not go to talk to investors until you complete at least some of this minimum viable category work, thought leadership, messaging, category creation or redefinition how the world is going to be transformed by the product and service that you're offering, your messaging, your positioning, maybe even running some smoke tests on LinkedIn. You don't have a product, but you can run very, very cheaply a bunch of ads as though you do have it. And if people click on those, it just says, hey, we don't have this yet, but give us your, your email and we'll capture that and we'll let you know when it does come out. That's at least a proxy for some kind of understanding. Does anybody do this? 
No, they do not. So if you're not Tom Siebel, who's built a multi-billion dollar company and made a whole bunch of people a whole lot of money, where he can just basically walk in anywhere and they're going to write a check for him. If you're not that person or people like him, which is probably 99.99% of the rest of us, then you need to put in some time and effort into addressing these minimum viable category issues. So when you do walk into um, a professional investor or an angel investor, anybody who you want to ask to invest in you, so that way you can show that you have done adequate market research that shows some kind of quantifiable, some sort of maybe statistically relevant data that suggests that there is a gap in the market, that what you're offering could fill that gap, and that you have an understanding of what the cost will be to build it and to bring it to market and to convert that into revenue. That just doesn't happen that often. Assuming that the founders did everything you just suggested, who and how should they reach out to you know, um, I get a lot of uh, unsolicited requests via LinkedIn or email about to look at this company or look at that company. The one thing that everybody needs to understand here is that this is a relationship business. If I don't know you and you don't know me, we need to spend some time sort of figuring out, you know, who are you? Who am I? I mean, we're going to spend quite a bit of time together. Average uh, exit usually is, takes, you know, at least seven years probably longer than a lot of marriages. I would suggest that rather than trying to pitch your idea, instead, uh, what you really want to do is to pitch a relationship. So I'll get these decks or I'll get these um, requests to meet, etc. We're all busy. I mean, just like the entrepreneurs, I don't sit around waiting for things to happen. I've got a lot of other things that are going on. I don't want to just meet to meet. I have no idea whether I'm interested in you which is basically what I'm investing in. I'm investing in the CEO and founder. The rest of the stuff is up to her or him. That's first and primary. Then, okay, well, maybe I'm interested in you, your background. You've got subject matter expertise. You believe you have an interesting idea, but let's just sit down for an hour or two and talk and see how we think about things. You know, I wrote this book, so I took time and energy, about a year and a half to write it, 35 years to get the background to write it. Read the book understand what the heck I wrote about, because this is how I make all, in fact, it's how we make all of our decisions here. We use this framework to evaluate where are you on the traction gap framework, what value inflection points have you reached, what are you doing around product, revenue, team, and systems, which are, it's the ontology of the framework. If you don't understand that, why are we meeting? I'm not going to just get together with you, let, you know, go through a bunch of slides. I've got a lot of those things to do. I would say start there. If you don't know anybody, you should not really ask me to introduce you to somebody else. One, there's an implicit endorsement that goes with that introduction. I'm not going to do that. And neither are a lot of other venture capitalists. The second thing is that if I do that, you don't want me to do that because that venture capitalist that I'm introducing to you in the back of their head is, hey, Bruce, a pretty good investor. Why is he passing on this? Why is he introducing this thing to me? Unless it was my company and I said, hey, I think this thing's working pretty well. You maybe want to take a look at it. You do not need that overhead. It's hard enough to get capital. So what do you do instead? I would argue you would look for warm introductions from other people, maybe independent board members who you, you know that may know those investors. They may sit on boards where there are uh, venture investors or angel investors. You also, I think you can use LinkedIn, but you can use it as a um, kind of like an advertising system for your financing, which is you can ratchet down 
to just have your ad for the fact that you're raising capital show up just in into certain venture capitalists. And you can figure out, well, who's interested in this area? Well, that's through Crunchbase. You can actually go find out well, who's invested in maybe either competitors or adjacent spaces, etc. You can find out what stage they invest in because if you're pre-seed or seed and they only do Cs, they're not going to invest in you. So why are you wasting time for them and, and yourself? So you can actually do a lot of the shoe leather work here, digital shoe leather, and really look at what firms invest in the area that you're trying to perform, what partners specifically have done it, and then you can target them through LinkedIn for cheap, for almost nothing, creating that that says, hey, we're raising capital. And have that show up. Make it kind of like a billboards and things. Those are not um, direct response. Those are branding. What you're trying to do is brand your name. Oh, After multiple repetitions, that ad's going to appear. And now you might be able to reach out directly to an investor and say, hey, or they might click on your ad. And that gives them an opportunity to take that to a, um, a landing page that invites them to look at your investor deck or for a meeting. So you don't really want doing cold calling on GPs. Most won't even look at this stuff. I try to just because we're a new firm. We got to be more open, available. But for the most part, I, I only invest in people I've known for a long time or come recommended through companies that I know that worked in my divisions at Apple or Oracle or Siebel come through my network. And if you don't know any venture capitalists, it's likely that your network does. And those are the people you need to go to. Don't ask a venture capitalist to give you an introduction to another venture capitalist. You've mentioned pre-seed, seed, and other rounds of fundraising. Could you please quantify them? The definitions of pre-seed, seed, A, B, these have become rather distorted over the last several years. They really don't tell us much of anything. I've got a company. It's a database company. They're capital intensive. We're probably on series D, I think, or whatever that is, our, our fourth round. And we just reached MVP. So is that company doing poorly? Well, if we were a mobile app company, yes, most likely, depending upon the sizes of those rounds. But no, it's a database company. It takes a lot of capital to build the infrastructure for that. So the round doesn't tell us anything. Unfortunately, it is the only way that we've really documented companies forever. (laughs) So it, it is the lexicon of the industry. But today, if you look at the data, I think CB Insights and uh, a couple others have produced some pretty interesting reports that show that roughly about 80% of all Series A and B rounds over the last three years are 10 million or greater. 60% of them are a little north of 60% are $25 million rounds. Well, that is not the traditional A slash B that we knew about. Seeds are now 5 million. You know, pre-seeds are a a million. It's insane. And again, I think these are terrible proxies. This is why I, you know, and I know that I'm I'm biased because I wrote the dang book, but um, this framework around ideation to minimum viable category to initial product release, minimum viable product, minimum viable repeatability, and then minimum viable traction all have associated metrics with them. Revenue, size of team, product state, system state, and amount of time and capital, etc. All of this stuff, I exposed it after doing, I don't know, dozens and dozens of interviews and looking at a lot of S1s and stuff of of companies, to give people an idea about how much capital should you be raising and how much should you be spending, depending upon your company maturity, in order to change the vocabulary of the industry. So now when we have a conversation, I go, well, I'm a Series B. Great. 
what the heck does that mean? I can say, no, I'm at MVR. Oh, well, that's 2 million of ARR. Took me roughly a year and a half to two years to get there after MVP. I have roughly 25 to 35 people in my company. There's a set of metrics that are all derived from the preponderance of data out there of all the startups that have gone through these phases. And so now I can look and I go, oh, well, I do. I look like a company at this stage. And therefore, I can be confident that when I go to meet with investors or when I'm spending capital or when I'm hiring that next employee, that I'm on model. And for investors, they have a way to figure out, okay, where is this company really? How much more capital is it going to take to get them to the next value inflection point when I hope a new investor, not me, can help to begin to carry the ball further downfield? So that's why I wrote this vernacular. But for the most part, we've seen a very large gap in the investment area, which is that lots of investment in seeds and you know early stuff, and then a dearth of investment for a lot of companies, you know, 80% of them, which fail outright. And then a bunch of venture capitalists who kind of sit in the deep end of the pool, waiting for the carnage to kind of, you know, the sharks and piranhas to kind of eat up all the, you know, those that don't make it. And then there's a, a food fight, you know, over who can get their term sheet into those companies, those startups who have traversed that gap, and they are now willing to uh, pay up um, in order to get into the deal. That's not a situation I want to, that's not where we invest. We invest more in the PowerPoint stage, far less in the spreadsheet stage. But your challenge, and you must accept this challenge and mission if you are an entrepreneur, is you've got to get your company from ideation across that traction gap period so that way you can take on capital at a far less dilutive rate from one of the brand venture firms, you know, that's really who gets, who have earned the opportunity to sit in the deep end of the pool and wait for that. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to invest at the very beginning. They know the entrepreneur or they're a big believer in the market space and the team, they'll invest at ideation. But I'm just giving you kind of, um, you know, the general rule of thumb. And I think for entrepreneurs, you need to know that. You need to know who you're talking to. You need to understand where does that person that, that you're talking to, where do they sit in that firm? What do I mean by that? Have they been successful? Do they have a lot of exits? Because that carries the juice. You know, They get the, to sit around the table as one of the important people. If they're a junior associate, they have very little juice in the partnership. They might be advocating for a GP to look at you, but they're not going to be the ones making the decision. So your job is to provide as much evidentiary fact as you can to whomever you're talking to about your company in order to get the most amount of capital for the least amount of dilution. And whether you call it a pre-seed or a seed or a series A really doesn't matter. What really matters is how much evidence have you captured to demonstrate risk reduction, risk in market, risk in team, risk in product, and risk in the systems of governance, etc., that you need in order to run that group. The further you can get on that continuum, on the least amount of money, will allow you to keep more of your company, and the subsequent rounds will be far less dilutive to you. I'm assuming the traditional SaaS metrics aren't applicable to a startup business on early stages. When a VC firm is ready to hear the pitch, what are they looking for? Most want to see evidence that you've got a working product, you have a team, and that you've got some customers or users. So in the B2B SaaS space, that usually means about a million of annual recurring revenue. It usually means 20 to 30 customers. 
It usually means that you've got at least the basics of a management team. Maybe it's just you and you know three or four engineers or whatever building this product. But they kind of like to see, well, there's people ready to come on board because those are all risk elements. And so that's why I say when you go this framework points out you've got ideation, you come up with an idea, you talk to your friends, you you know, maybe you went to school at Stanford and you study engineering, you, you hung out together and you want to build a product. You have an idea for a product. So they're willing to do it. They'll work nights and weekends. They got other jobs right now doing stuff, but they're willing to do this at, at basically just on the promise of equity and joining. Okay. And that's pretty typical. So you've got that. And then comes this minimum viable category. So, okay, great. Who are you disrupting? You know, what is this category that you want to enter? If you try to enter somebody else's category, that's fraught with peril. They define the attributes and the characteristics and how the game is played. So what you want to do is you want to either redefine that category or build a new one so that way others have to compete using your terms, not their terms. So the reason I bring this up is that as you are pulling the team together, the more you can accomplish – Before you ever talk to the investment community, the more likely it will be that they will actually write a check, uh, provide capital, and they will write it at a rate that allows you to keep far more of your company. They may write checks, but the cost of those checks, you know, the soul of the company, which is the equity and ownership that you have, kind of goes along with This is the most expensive capital that you can acquire. You want to get as much as you can that you need but the least amount because as you traverse this traction gap, as you move the company forward and reach these value inflection points, and they're really step functional changes, you know, it's not this gradual slope that happens. What happens is you either make it to the next value inflection point or you don't. And if you do not, the penalties can be severe, which is nobody will fund you. I mean, that's as bad as that and you go out of business. Or if they do fund you, the price is extraordinarily expensive. You give up a lot of of equity, a lot of ownership. So the game that needs to be played, think of them as kind of stones across a river. You want to leap to the next stone and make it on the capital that you currently have. Because then when you go to talk to the next set of investors who operate at that part of the river, I'm not sure what these metaphors were, but um, you want to make sure that you make it because now you've demonstrated that you have increased the value of that company because you have dramatically reduced risk for where you are. And that is the challenge at every phase of when you raise capital is that when you go out for that next round, you need to reach these value inflection points within a certain amount of time. Um, it turns out you only get from when you declare your initial product release, which is what we would term an alpha or a beta version, you only get about three years. And I don't make these numbers up. This is the road well paved by, I don't know, 60, 70 different SaaS companies that are now public. So by definition, they were successful. You got to get from IPR to MVP in about six months, initial product release to an MVP polish it up in about six months. You need to get from MVP. And by the way, you get to control when MVP is declared. So be careful when you declare it because now you are on the venture clock. So when you declare MVP, now you've got about a year to get to a million of ARR. You get about another six months to reach two million of ARR. And you get about another year to reach MVT, minimum viable traction. And that's about 6 million of ARR. These are not hard and fast rules, but they're pretty close. It's what Workday did. It's what Salesforce did. It's what Marketo did. You know, Slack did way better. You have to hit these timeframes. You don't have the luxury of taking five years to get to a million. That's just too slow. So you need to be able to go out when you talk to the investor community. You got to show how you are on model, how you are doing against this. And that's why I say... 
be careful about when you declare MVP. A lot of people declare MVP when they think they have a, a product that they've worked on and, and it's working and they've sold it a couple times. That's not MVP. MVP also includes all that market engineering work, category creation, thought leadership. Where's the book that you wrote about your new category? Where are the conferences that you've spoken? Who's following you? Who wants to go to your party? Why does anybody care about what you have to say? What's the lexicon that you're changing? Remember, companies that win aren't building better products. They're building different products. Your job is to what Steve Jobs said many years ago, think different. You need to think different. You need to speak different, and you need to make people think different. That's part of that market engineering work that few do. They think that, oh, I'll build a product and they will come. They will not come. There's no budget sitting out there waiting for you to show up in a corporation that they're going to write a check for. You are stealing, stealing capital from one group to fund you. Why is someone going to do that? Why is someone going to risk their job or their career on your product? Why should they spend money on it? Especially if it's something different and new. I never heard of this before. When Phil and John and Dave created Marketo, we'd heard about marketing automation, but it was really around budgeting and more financial kind of things. No one had heard of lead scoring or lead nurturing. These were new ideas and that Phil, John, and Dave came up with. And they caused marketers to think different. There was no budget for marketers to spend money on technology in 2006. And we could barely get, they could barely get people to pay for one, you know, a month's worth of their technology, let alone a year. Today, it's all accepted as de rigueur. We've got fast followers who've done great, like HubSpot and others. But at the time, you know, there were just a few fish in the sea. There was Eloqua, you know, they've been around. And so, so Phil intuitively understood. And John, I'm leaving Dave out because Dave was the engineering guy. So, but Phil and John intuitively understood they needed to become innate category builders. They needed to be market engineers, and they did a phenomenal job doing that. And I would say that, you know, if I look at what we did at Siebel or what Larry did at Oracle back in the day, what Mark Benioff did in redefining CRM, he didn't create perpetual license enterprise CRM. No, he actually shot that and said, hey, why are you paying all that money? There's this new category, much better, this delivery model, SaaS pretty important. Um, so Mark didn't create CRM. He rethought it, reinvented it, how it could be delivered. So my point here is don't walk into an investors with basically a product deck and a product pitch and expect them to be able to invest in you. You need a talk track that speaks to investors. When you go to a conference, you speak thought leadership. You come up with new words, new ideas. People aren't there to buy something from you. They're there to learn something from you. When you do a sales call, they're not really there to listen to your fancy words about how great the world will be. They have a specific business problem. They want to understand how your product addresses that problem with the feature set that it has. And then with investors, they're kind of a combination of the two. Very few investors have ever built a product. Very few investors have ever for been part of you know an operating team at a at a senior level very few have built billion dollar companies from scratch so they might have an intuitive sense if it's a consumer product that what you're building could be useful because they're consumers but if they haven't been in business if they haven't run business functions then it's much more challenging for them to kind of figure out is your product going to work so do not come and do a product pitch gussied up with one financial slide in it you need to create a deck that has thought leadership in it about here's my vision oh by the way i know i have vision but i can also focus so here's focus this is what we're going to go to first second third and fourth here's the business model 
this is how we're going to position ourselves, deposition everybody else. Here's what our customer acquisition costs are going to be. We don't know for sure, but we've done some analysis. We believe that we are like this company over here with this kind of pricing. We think we could charge similar pricing. We think that we can acquire a customer for 3x you know, lifetime value initially going down to 0.5, at least have a point of view on this because that is what the investor is going to want to hear is like, okay, do they really understand that if they were part of a product team inside of a Salesforce or an Oracle or whatever, they're no longer just a product team. They're the entire company, finance, sales, marketing, service, customer success. They have to have an understanding of all those things. They may not be great at all of them, but they need to understand what they are, how they work, etc., and have a point of view about, well, I also know this gal over here, she's going to join us. She's going to run customer experience. At least express the fact that you know that there are deficiencies in the management team and in the areas that you're covering and that this is how you expect to take care of those deficiencies with capital. Let's assume that the VC is interested and wants to invest. How should the deal be structured? Do you use equity, safe, anything else? And also, would you recommend the entrepreneur to reach out to a legal firm? We have to remember, do we hold the cards or do the investors hold the cards? If you're Tom Siebel or you're Mark Benioff or you're Josh James who did Omniture and then did Domo or people like that, they can kind of demand the terms. The company will always be formed as a C-Corp. It will always have common stock and preferred stock. Preferred will be owned by the investors, etc. But If you're going to talk about a note, so here's kind of my point of view on notes. Maybe others have a a different say, but my point is um, notes are, um, I I don't do them, uh, safes or whatever. That puts all the business risk on me to hope that you eventually raise capital. I mean, no, I'm not doing that. If I'm going to invest, it's going to be for an equity position. And if you're not willing to do that, that's great, but it's not likely that I'm going to invest. Except, of course, I mean, if it's like Tom or somebody else, I go, okay, well, I kind of got to accept these terms because they're in the driver's seat. So you kind of got to figure that out. Are you in the driver's seat as the entrepreneur or is the investor in the driver's seat? You don't get to dictate terms. I love it when people send these things like, we're selling 10% of the company for X amount of dollars. I go, you don't get to make that. Don't even put that in there. That just shows that, you're, that you don't understand the game that you're playing. The investors will tell you how much they're willing to give you for what percent. They will always take a preferred position for several reasons. One is because if everything goes to heck in a handbasket and the company needs to be sold off, well, they may reward the management team in a carve out and say, yes, we'll give you some money to help get this thing sold. But for the most part, you, the entrepreneur and team, didn't do what you said you were going to do. Investors took a risk on you and they need to know, okay, well, at least I might get some of my money back. If they sit in common, that's not going to happen. So, um, Or if there's debt that sits in front of all of this, the debt gets paid first. So it's going to be preferred. The terms of the preferred, I mean, at least out here, it's relatively entrepreneurial friendly. I know a lot of term sheets on the East Coast have these like participating preferred, which means not only do I get paid money back, but I get paid two or three X what I put in before anybody gets anything. And then I participate in my pro rata. Mm, not very friendly. Most of the term sheets out here don't have that in there. But expect that the term sheet will have preferred stock in it. It'll have rights, uh, a lot of rights, uh, board rights, board observer rights. It'll dictate things like drag along rights and other things that are complicated that you should be talking to an attorney about. So to answer your question about attorneys, I would go with a, a blue chip firm. Maybe they're not going to be the ones who do all of your contracts, et cetera. That's expensive. But you really want to be associated with the brand firms, the Coolies, the 
Perkin Cooey's, the ones that the venture community recognize because we trust them the work will be done well. We know it's expensive. It's 750 bucks an hour or more for this work, so it's not cheap, but you want kind of that name associated uh, with your company. And then once you kind of have that done, you can find other attorneys who will do contract work for you for far less. And I would advise you to have both of those resources available to you. What should entrepreneurs expect from VCs after the investment is made? What should they expect and what are they going to get? (laughs) Those might be two different things. So the one thing is that the venture investors are all smart people. I mean, they're just sharp people. You don't get to be a GP in a firm. Limited partners don't give general partners a lot of capital to go invest unless they're able to articulate how they're going to invest that money, et cetera. The issue is is that if you're an early stage startup, how many of these investors have actually built an early stage startup? Were they the CEO or part of the founding management team? Because if they aren't, then it's basically, they saw it in a movie. They get to see kind of at board meetings, which might be once a month at those early stage things, they see what's happening, but they're not making sales calls. They're not making the decision on which product features to put in. They're not building the operational infrastructure of that company, and they never have. If they were in the operating side, a lot of them were maybe junior product managers you know, or uh, may have some engineering background, but that doesn't mean they built a billion-dollar company. They haven't seen all the phases of that. They didn't personally have to go do it. So to expect your venture investor to have a strong point of view based on their personal experience is too much. What you can expect, though, is they've seen a lot of things. They know what's going to sell to other venture investors. That's important. They probably have a network of people. They may have it in industry where that might be able to help you sell your product or service to somebody because they can get you an intro. But I wouldn't expect that for the most part. Then it comes down, well, okay, well, if I can't expect that, what should I look for? I think what you want to look for is people who actually have seen a lot of patterns and they can begin to recognize when things aren't happening fast enough or that they can ask you questions that are thoughtful because they've seen a lot of things go sideways. They may not know exactly how to correct it all uh, and you shouldn't expect them to correct it, but they have seen a lot. What they are not there to do is to define your product. They're not there. I mean, they can react to it, but remember, they're just one point of view. Don't use them to interview candidates. Use people who've held that role that you want the candidate to interview for. Find people who are experts that have been in the role, sales, marketing, service, at the same stage that you're interviewing for. Those are the people who have the subject matter expertise and know what this person is going to have to accomplish. That's who you should have interview, engineering, marketing, sales. In fact, in the company, engineers should interview other engineers. Everybody else should be selling. They should be selling the candidate on why they should be there. You can't interview for culture, but not for job function expertise. And the same goes for your venture investors. A lot of them like to do interviews. The problem is, is that they've never held the job they're interviewing for. That's crazy. I mean, would you take your car? You never worked on a car. You're not a mechanic. Would you go and try to fix the clutch or try to change the transmission? You might, but probably not. You go to a, a trained expert mechanic to work on your car. The same's true here. You know, we need to delegate that responsibility. But ask your venture investors to sell the candidate on why they invested. 
Why did you make that decision? That's relevant. That's important. And the venture investors can't even interview for culture. They're not there every day. They, I mean, they hear about your culture, maybe, but they don't know your culture. They're not in your culture. And all the interviews that we did as a group, to all these companies for this book, the one thing around product, revenue, team, and systems, those are the four building blocks that gird this traction gap framework. It was team that came out with every single one was the most important block. Why? Because it was dysfunctional teams, toxic team members, just a bunch of different team-related things that ended up kneecapping these companies. It wasn't around the product. It wasn't around necessarily even the market. It was really around they made bad hiring decisions. And so I would argue that this is where you really need to spend time and effort and understand who is going to do what and how are they going to do it in this candidate interview process. And then I already gave you kind of my thoughts about what roles each should play. As a founder, how much equity would you be willing to give away on a seed round? No matter what, the venture investors know the reason that you are showing up is for equity. So there's kind of a, a maximum amount of equity that they're willing to take. That sounds funny, but the maximum amount they're willing to take really is around 75%. I mean, that wouldn't be an atrocious amount, and most will never do that. The management team try to replenish this employee option pool to make sure that everybody has at least 25% of the company total in aggregate. Now, how that's divided up amongst the CEO, CTO, CMO, whatever, and then the other employees, that's a different matter. But for the most part, that's kind of the most that can go. Typically, though, what you can expect the first amount, the first investor in is probably going to want at this stage somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of your company. And then what you're trying to do is to hit those value inflection points because then you can raise capital at roughly around a 10 percent cost from where you are. I mean, if you keep hitting these value inflection points and you raise the value of the company so that way you can raise a lot more capital for a lot less ownership dilution, the venture capital community is pretty happy because you're doing well. The last investor in feels pretty good because now their dollars are in, their capital in is worth more on paper. Employees feel better because you'll do uh, an analysis of the uh, the stock option worth and that'll come back and everybody will go, oh, hey, they're worth more. My common shares are, are you know, if I vest them all over this four-year period, they're going to be worth a lot more. So that's kind of, you know, I would say a very rough rule of thumb. But more or less, you know, your first capital in is going to want 20 to 30 percent for all the risks they're taking. Over time, they're going to want to make sure that the management team and the employees never go below around 25 percent of the company. What should the founder expect in terms of compensation? Remember, every dollar that you get is a dollar that you either spend on yourself or you spend on the product or the market, right? And so what you really want to do is try to figure out how can you take the least amount of capital that you need to live off of at this moment in time in order to hire more people and to do more development, more go-to-market work. I mean, we have to live, we have lives, we have rent, we've got mortgages, we may have kids, etc. So for the most part, I mean, there's these Radford studies that will show you compensation for your company. And the venture community is pretty well aware of these. And you can ask the venture firm for a copy. They usually pay for them or they're given them or they provide feedback into Radford that will say, hey, for your company in the San Francisco Bay Area, for your role, here's kind of the the top, middle, and low end of the range for salary and equity. And then you kind of want to look at that, and I would argue, you know, kind of go for the middle, you know, or if you could do without, if you made a lot of money from a prior thing, then I would argue some of our CEOs take very little cash because they made a lot of money before they can afford to do this, and they ask for more equity. 
So in exchange, and that gives them more cash to hire more people, which obviously means they can get further along. So you don't want to make money off the cash because um, that's hurting yourself, actually. Every dollar that you take in is less than you have to give to hire that next engineer, that next marketer, next salesperson. So that should be your strategy. That should be the spirit under which you do your compensation. And I would say ask for a copy of these salary surveys, comp surveys, and then use that to determine, hmm, this is what other people are being paid. I'm going to ask for this amount because that's kind of what I need. And then that will usually be accepted pretty well by your board. Did they miss anything that founders should really know? We covered a lot of ground. And, uh, you know, one thing that I would restate, you know, every business book that's written, there's usually one or two nuggets that you take away with or things that you remember. A lot of things are said in them, but usually a year or two later, you remember one or two. What I'd like everybody to remember is that this book that I wrote, if you decide to read it or, or even if you don't, this notion of market engineering, this is the difference. Market engineers and market engineering is what separates the winners from losers. If you don't know how to be a market engineer, learn how to be one. You can read this book. At least it will show you the things you need to do. Find people who can help you accomplish those tasks associated with market engineering. If this is not part of your innate DNA, you're not a chief evangelist officer. That's just not you. You're not Mark Benioff or Tom Siebel who can tell a great story and can script people. Find a compliment. Find somebody who can work side by side. Maybe they become the president. Find another person who can be that person who can conscript. And this is a very important hire. So if you can't do it, find somebody who can. And again, market engineering is not something to delegate down to a marketer or to a PR person. The market engineering work is what the management team collectively must do. So all of you need to be involved in it. All of you need to know the positioning, the messaging, the category, et cetera, and agree to it. If you don't, then you'll never build a brand. You won't build a category and you'll be one of those. If you're not an outright failure, you'll be an also ran, which is, um, that means the stock is not worth as much as what it should have been. So that's what I hope people take away with. Bruce, thank you very much. It was a fantastic interview. 